Hello, and welcome to the fourth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Rob Hartman. Rob is a composer, lyricist, book writer, and producer, originally from Arizona and currently residing in Denmark. He received his MFA from New York University's Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program, where he was a member of the faculty for 15 years, and also co-founded the MA in Writing Musicals at the Mount View Academy of Dramatic Arts in London. He has had over 15 musicals produced in the U.S. and abroad, and most recently wrote the libretto for Sweet Louisa, a chamber opera, which will premiere in the fall of 2022. Currently, he is a producer and head of new work development at Fredericia Musical Theater in Denmark. We're going to talk today about Stephen Sondheim and George Firth's musical, Merrily We Roll Along. Hey Rob, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited that you are here. Thank you so much. I've been really wanting to do this for a long time. Yeah, I know. I feel like you were a guest that I was like, oh, when I was only doing guests in person, I was like, oh, I wish I could have Rob on. And now all guests are virtual. So (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. Well, fantastic. We will get right into our get to know our guest questions so yes what was your first experience with a musical um first experience seeing a musical so um my mother loves musicals we had you know all sorts of cast albums at home and whenever there was going to be one of her favorite musicals on like you know the late show or something she'd uh, let me stay up and watch so some of the early ones were like the film of brigadoon the film of the king and i West Side Story, of course, Sound of Music. So that was like the first kind of seeing these very, you know, those very epic films. And, um, but then past that, I I don't remember what musicals I would have seen as a kid, but it was like doing a musical in high school, you know, doing Godspell in high school, like maybe, you know, so many people do. And that was really it. And, you know, before that time, I was all set to have another path in life. And then I was in a show and, oh, well. <laughs> and then uh, life takes a turn. Yeah. Which show was the one you were in? Was that Godspell? Godspell, yeah. As a sophomore in high school. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Really great. It happens. <laughs> um, what's a musical people may be surprised to find out you love, and why would they be surprised? Well, a musical that I really love is uh, the Rocky Horror Show and also the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I first encountered it as the Rocky Horror Picture Show in high school. And I used to go down to, it played at this little theater in Tucson, Arizona, where I grew up and would go down with my friends and, you know, act it out. And there may be video which exists of me and my friends doing a few numbers, like lip syncing a bunch of the numbers from the show. Um, I came to get under lock and key for blackmail purposes, but, And I think, you know, I'd gone to see an outdoor production of it and was talking about how much I loved it. And someone said, oh, well, it's funny because, you know, you've taught, you know, musical structure and all those things. And, you know, it's funny to think like if Rocky Horror Show were ever to go through like a development process or anything like that, it wouldn't be the kind of fantastic kind of wild anarchy thing that it is, you know? And I think that as much as, we as writers and people who, you know, want to see musicals up on stage, there's a point where you have to let something be that explosion from the id that it is. And, you know, I love that show and always have. It was actually an official high school drama club trip for us to go see that <laughs> the Rocky mm. show at the Bucks County Playhouse um, in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. So, yeah. I was like 14 years old and I was headed with like my high school to go see. Fantastic. <laughs> to go see it. Yeah. It was great. I was so, I was really obsessed with it at the time because I, you know, saw the movie and in preparation for going to see the show and yeah. Yeah, it's a thing and 
things that are important about it are it's something that you need to see in a group. Like watching the movie at home is not anything, mm. you know, like what the experience is. It's about as theatrical of an experience as you can have in a movie theater, I think, with the group response. And also it's like, you know, the sort of illogic of it is part of what draws you in. I'm, I'm, I've always been fascinated by what makes a cult musical a cult musical, what gives it a following. And, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to it, but I think one of the things is that things that tend to have that following like that operate by their own logic. They aren't sort of clean and neat. They're, they're, they're messy and they get into something deeper. And it's, it's hard to go to that place, you know? Um, and I think it's a great example. I mean, people, so many people have seen it and loved it. And in some ways it makes no sense. And in other ways it makes every bit of sense. Who is your favorite hero character or protagonist in a musical? And who is your favorite villain or antagonist in a musical? I'll start with the villain who is uh, the mayoress, Cora Hoover Hooper from Anyone Can Whistle, yeah. played originally by Angela Lansbury. And I love, part is like, she just gets the best songs. She has um, the song, Me and My Town is fantastic it's very jazzy it goes through and there's like a you know like a samba section in the middle yeah it's just a really fun uh character to sink one's teeth into now the the i really thought i went through all these musicals and i thought favorite gosh you know because i do love so many but then um and there were two that I landed on and they're similar. They're both originally played by Barbara Cook. And I would not necessarily think I would have arrived at this, but one is Amalia from um, She Loves Me. Mm -hmm. And the other is uh, Marion from The Music Man. Yeah. And I sort of scoffed at The Music Man for a long time because I didn't really know it. And it's easy to sort of put it in the, oh, that's just an old fashioned musical. And um, I was reading about it. I read Meredith Wilson's book, um, but he doesn't know the territory about his writing of the show and how it, you know, this uh, character was based on his mother and all these things. And the song that I think, I mean, she has so many great numbers in the show, but the song, My White Knight, which very often just kind of gets, um, I don't know if it, uh, if it gets its full due. It's something which I, I music directed the show in Summerstock in Montana and working on that song, it's so incredibly heartbreaking to me. And when a, when a performer can get to that level of, that she's showing both, you know, her dream of, you know, trying to find someone who can just speak to her on a level that, you know, she's just never found anyone who can talk with her in that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get choked up thinking about it. And it's a really, you know, it's a really fun role to play. I mean, I just not did not think in a million years that that would be the one that I would say. <laughs> but today, that's who it is. And Amalia is very similar. I mean, they, they wrote for what they knew Barbara Cook could do. And she had that incredible voice, but also her soul just emanates right through it. And she has real vulnerability. And I think it's something like, you know, it's a hard thing to find on stage now because things are trending towards, you know, vocal acrobatics and all those things. But to find a moment of true vulnerability, um, that's that's what I really prize, I think. Yeah, no, it's great. I love both those, both those characters. What is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state you didn't think was possible to get to? You know, I loved this question and thinking about all the moments that I really love. And some, you know, I think about those transcendent moments and some are maybe kind of obvious, like, you know, there's that very last moment at the end of act one of Sunday in the Park with George, where we see the, 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 um, the painting. But one thing that struck me, because this was a moment that in Sweeney Todd, and it was a moment that I hadn't really fully understood i'd seen you know a lot of productions of the show and then the seeing the john doyle production with patty lapone um playing mrs lovett it was the way that they played the um not while i'm around scene and i hadn't fully understood the way that this is the moment that mrs lovett knows that she will have to kill toby there was something unfolding and you saw her whole thought process of he knows too much. I, I actually get emotional thinking about it. And that, so, you know, it's obviously in there and in the text, but the particular way that she played it, I thought was, 
-hmm. just incredible well on that note ending there on sondheim let's (laughs) this is uh we're going to talk a lot about Sondheim this episode, so let's move into our topic of Merrily We Roll Along. Yes. And I thought uh, to get started talking about this show, we could talk about first our experience seeing this show because there's a lot of different productions, mm. and I think, you know, which productions you see can have an effect on how you think about the show and your your experience with the show so yeah why don't you talk about uh your your experience with it so uh, as i mentioned i grew up in tucson and uh there was a record store there where some musical theater fan uh, in the buying department like there were all these sondheim albums and i had sort of discovered sondheim um in high school and company was the first musical that I attached to, but then they had the album of Merrily We Roll Along. And, you know, the, um, you know, the album was like a double fold. It was like really well produced. It was like, you know, nice and heavy and it had, you know, great pictures and things. And one of the things I loved about it um, was just the sound of it, like the, the sound of the recording, like it, you know, it, I like it when a, when a, cast album sounds like it's taking place in a theater and that was sort of the you know that was the style that now you know they're it's sort of done a bit differently now uh today but really um i didn't know the story other than the liner notes and i just listened to it over and over and loved the energy of it and the jazziness of it and you know you know the story of the friends or whatnot so um fast forward to i'm in college i've got two roommates one is you know born to play charlie kringas which he ended up doing many times in his career as an actor. My other roommate was a perfect Mary Flynn. I'm like, we're going to do this show. So yeah. we did it with the drama fraternity. Um, got to, you know, talk to all my other musical theater major friends into doing it. And here's the part of the story, which I will preface by saying, I know better now, <laughs> which is that. So we got, you know, we wrote to, um, I guess, MTI and got the, and, and got the libretto. And at that time, because this was still the 80s, so long ago, um, it was the late 80s, but they, they were still licensing the original Broadway script. And when you read that very first script, it was like, oh, I see. Like, it, it was hard to follow in the, you know, just in the in the dialogue. But this was, um, you know, again, like right at the end of the 80s. And they had since done a rewrite at La Jolla Playhouse. I knew about this by reading my faithful copy of Sondheim and Company that everybody had. And, you know, they listed the productions in the back. And I was like, oh, I wonder, I don't know if they listed the songs in that, but there were a few songs listed that, you know, weren't in, you know, on the album. And I thought, I wonder just what that is. So, um, you know, Arizona, it's a big state, but it's a small theater community. And I heard that George Firth was coming to do a production in Phoenix, uh, working on rewriting it some more. And I sort of knew the guy who was um, directing that. So I drove from Tucson to Phoenix to say, hi, hey, what are you doing? Um, I heard you're doing this thing. You don't have the script lying around, do you? He said, yeah, um, here, why don't you take an afternoon to read it while I'm rehearsing this other show? I'm like, great. Ran to a photocopy shop, copied that baby up and ran home with it to Tucson and then did a very illegal thing, which was created my own little hybrid of the original and this rewritten because the rewrite they did in La Jolla was fantastic. It, it, it you know, it, it, um, it just had such, you know, more um, nuance to it. And uh, they, they had removed the, um, the opening graduation scenes. They'd taken out Hills of Tomorrow and it had just sort of a, this opening where it launches right into Merrily We Roll Along. Well, I, in my 20 year old wisdom or however old I was was like, no, let's, let's, so I kind of stitched those things together, which is, you know, not what you do. So um, that was my first experience with it. And then I've, anytime I've had an opportunity to see it on stage, I've gone. So I saw a production at arena stage, which had um, Victor Garber as Frank and uh, David Garrison, who had been on married with children as Charlie, Becky Ann Baker as Mary and Marin Maisie as Beth. And this was the first time I'd, I think seen her, you know, Beth is a very difficult character. She, you, 
beginning of the show you just sort of hear about her and then she has to walk out and in a minute later has to sing not a day goes by and you know Marin Maisie is who she is and she's just walked out fully present to this three-dimensional character and like you know in a minute launches into this song and destroys you I was like oh my god so with that production though, it was something where there's some productions which they fall in love with the time periods. And so that one in particular was a real festival of funny clothes, you know, and that was, you know, to where it was like, weren't the seventies ugly, you know, kind of a thing. So it was a lot of, a lot of lime green and vinyl boots. And so it became about that, which I think is a red herring or it's a blind alley with this show to get too involved in, you know, just, what you know what were we wearing in 1978 that's not what it's really about and the other thing was you know Victor Garber of course is an incredible performer but he and and this is true in many productions I've seen where they think oh well Frank is going to turn out to be this jerk so let's cast someone who easily slips into that whereas I think the idea is that he's someone who is maybe his flaw is that he is a people pleaser and you know he makes sort of wrong steps all along the way and you know victor garber is incredible but in his best roles you know, he has a certain coldness that comes across like in assassins and, and other things and you you really have to have like an incredible heart i think to play frank and to really understand the tragedy of it especially i mean one of the things that i took issue with um i like who am i it, you know <laughs> doesn't matter but the you know, the thing with Rich and Happy, that song is you see that this man has ended up in a shark tank and he doesn't really realize it. Um, so the, the capper to this story is this was about the time that I had moved to New York. And like every composer, I wrote a letter to Mr. Sondheim, dear Mr. Sondheim, et cetera, et cetera. And like the incredible person he is, you know, he's really well known for all the um, mentoring and everything he's he's done. He wrote me a letter back. There's all sorts of twists and turns to this story, which are for another time, but essentially after a lot of um, figuring out dates and times, I was invited to chat with him at his house. And I went in my little thrift store suit from my temp job. Um, and I'd had, you know, his um, um, houseman, whatever brought me I had two big glasses of white wine, let's put it that way. So, and he came bouncing down the stairs and, you know, it's like, just, he's like, you know, amazing. There he is on the couch and just asking me questions. And I decided, well, listen, you know, I was not drunk, but I was a little loose. And so uh, I decided to tell him everything that I thought about Mary Lee Roll Along. And I look back and I'm like, how did I not end up getting thrown out onto the street? You know, I mean, how many millions of people must have, um, I look at this in a completely different way now that, you know, I've, you know, uh, been a writer for a long time. And, but, you know, he was great and he kind of engaged with my ideas and, you know, just, you know, sort of things that he'd heard. And he told me why they thought that the graduation scenes needed to come out. And I had some opinions about the character of Mary, who I felt was like really pivotal to the show. And he said, no, no, she's just the comic relief. And that conversation which i will treasure it's one of the highlights of my life but where i understood that a creator of a work could not necessarily know everything that was present in the work because you know and this is true like when something's out in the world everyone who has since done the show or seen the show they bring you know something to it and they can find things which maybe you know weren't necessarily intended but you know they're definitely there so that was a really pivotal thing to understand you know just you can have differing views from um you know uh, what a what a creator has uh, has thought or intended about the show but um anyway so that's my that's the first phase of encounters so how about how about you <laughs> yeah well i first saw the show when I was in high school, um, I'm from Philadelphia and we went into Philadelphia to see theater a lot. So uh, the art and theater in Philadelphia, I don't know if they still do. I mean, obviously not at this moment, but they would do like a Sondheim show very regularly. Um, and they would do it merrily we roll along and I saw it and uh, it 
I had no point of comparison, but I thought it, it must have been a great production because I left like loving the show. Um, and since then have seen, um, let's see, uh, the City Center production with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Celia Keenan-Bolger. Um, the, there was a production like at Astoria Performing Arts Center that I saw there was <clears throat> I forget which theater it was in London that it was broadcast here. Yep. Uh, it's twenty twenty thirteen, I think. I, mean, was the I was year. about to guess that, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um so I saw that in the movie theaters with you know, everybody that I it seemed like I knew everybody in the theater. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh I think and that was, and I think that's when I started. Uh, every time that I went to Barnard, and there's actually a line in the show, "Barnard girls are dippy" or something yes. like that. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, every time that I think that was the first time I did it, but every time that line goes, I I boo or something. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> throw a little audience participation in there, um, and then I also saw the fiasco theater uh company production at that was at roundabout just a couple years ago now and that was definitely the last one i saw i think a lot of conversations now around the show and i think the conversation around that production was what kind of got me thinking of it because it was so recent but i'm sure that happened around other productions of the show too is just like does the i does this show work and i think mm -hmm. anytime i've you know now that people see it it's like there's two camps i think people who just like don't think the show works and evaluate mm -hmm. it on that level and then people who do think the show works and are evaluating it on another level because they're already coming in or, or leaving yeah. the show thinking that it that works and then mm -hmm. but if you, if you don't think it works then you're you're stuck evaluating on the fact that it doesn't work it's it's interesting because a lot of conversations about musicals, yeah, are that, does it work or not? And what's funny is that at a certain point, I, I was like, I don't even know what it means to say that something works or doesn't work. And again, that's like a whole other conversation, but people mm. sort of toss that off. Oh, it doesn't work. I was like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, did you understand it? Yeah. Well, it's like to say you didn't respond to it is a bit different, but there is a whole thing. And to take a little detour into, um, you know, you and I are both writers of shows and, um, and have been around a lot of new work. And there's a lot of things that I encounter. You know, I think one thing we can all agree on is that there is no formula for, you know, what makes a musical hang together. And that's sort of the beauty of it. And this kind of thing, you know, the, the, the number one, well, you can't tell a story backwards, which is, you know, that's just patently ridiculous. You know, it's, it's it, that's not an issue. And especially now as audiences become much more attuned to kind of different ways of telling stories, you know, through different, um, like once Memento happened, I'm like, okay, no one can ever criticize Merrily We Roll Along again. And there is a thing about uh, at a certain point fixing what isn't broken. And George Firth, who um, I never had the pleasure of meeting, but I've had friends who actually had worked on different productions of um, Merrily as he kept sort of um, messing around with the book and sort of trying this and trying that. And I do think that like past that La Jolla production or the arena production, like in the eighties, you know, that it really like had reached what it needed to be. And and since, since then there's been a lot more shuffling around and the introduction of you know, Franklin Jr., the boy, you know, which in the original production and in at least in the early ones that I had seen, you know, wasn't a presence on stage. Mm -hmm. And that started to change it or, you know, there was seemed to be a lot of like, for instance, um, one of the things, you know, besides the chronological structure, people say, oh, Frank isn't likable, which, you know, that is another thing, like the term likable, which I think should be thrown out. Like that doesn't mean anything. Is Sweeney Todd likable? Perhaps, but you're, but he's someone that you want to follow. So I think that's also like a sort of a very easy thing to fall back on. Yeah. But, you know, there were a lot of things where like, oh, we have to make him likable, likable, likable. And which is, you know, it's again, it's a red herring. 
one production which I thought was genius in what it did in a lot of ways and and equally had some things which I didn't agree with, but this was a production that they did in Cincinnati, which was a John Doyle production. And it was a lot of um, performers who I know who had been, um, a lot of them had been in the company production. I'd driven out to see it and um, the stage was a lot of, it's all these stacks of like legal boxes, you know, and like manuscript paper everywhere on the stage. And it began with the actor, they cast like a um, Franklin, uh, junior as like a college actor going through his father's stuff. And the implication was that he had, I can't remember at the end, well, the implication was like, maybe he was dead or something. And so, and I was like, okay, I'll, you know, fine. We're not doing the graduation, but they came on with kind of the music was emerging from these boxes and, you know, merrily we roll along began there. That really, you know, sort of weaving it through with, the son trying to understand his father's life and digging into his archives. I was like, okay, I see that as, you know, what replaces, you know, Frank having a breakdown at a graduation and, you know, that being the trigger to launch him through, uh, you know, seeing all these moments that he had taken a um, wrong turn. Like in the production that I directed, uh, you know, we, we, went into each scene. What is the moment when he could have made a different choice, but he makes one which pushes him through. Um, so this was one where I was like, okay, this is what's gonna pull through. It was like, that was maybe the closest to finding something that's gonna push us through that, um, uh, you know, push us through that story and have a reason to begin. When it just sort of begins out of the air, I, and maybe it's because of my knowledge of, you know, the graduation scenes and whatnot. But yeah, I thought that was a really interesting, a really interesting uh, take on it. Yesterday's dawn, see the pretty countryside. Merrily we roll along, roll along, bursting with dreams. Flashing by the countryside Everybody merrily, merrily Catching a dream Rolling along Rolling along Rolling along It makes me think like, you know, when I saw it, when I first saw it, I guess I, you know, I've only seen the show post, you know, 1980, what, five was when they mm-hmm. did the, the rewrite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I love listening to the original cast album. I, I like the orchestrations on it better. I just, yeah. um, you know, for various, and I love, you know, I love the Hills of Tomorrow and, you know, a lot of the cuts, you know, the songs that have changed. Um. But I have to acknowledge that, like, the reason I love the show is because I saw productions that were the rewrite, that were... Of course, yeah. That are better, you know? Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. just because they cast adults, because they actually, like, rewrote a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And it, and in my opinion, it works. I think people... Yeah. I just think people get hung up on we're starting with characters characters who are at their worst you know and how do you get past that i guess you know um which is another reason why that was something that the graduation scene or something before we hit that first party scene Franklin Shepherd. 
I am Franklin Shepard, and I also was my class valedictorian here 25 long years ago. <laughs> Are these kids swell? We don't have to wonder what happened to the world's ideals anymore. This gang behind me has taken them all. <laughs> so, would I be hanged if I told you, young innocents, a few realities? I can save you guys so much pain and hurt if I can make you understand today that life isn't about doing the best, it's about doing the best you can. No, it isn't. It's doing the best. A goal is something you aim for more than something you achieve. It's the old tell it like it is speech. I'm thinking you better start by hearing the word practical right here, right now, today. Where's the exit? Someday I guarantee you'll know practical very well. Wow. Fate has a way of introducing us to practical eventually. Give us a break, Mr. Shepard. And it's the same with the word compromise. Compromise? I haven't even started. Yesterday is done. Compromise is how you survive. It's how you give up. Because the party scene, it's the second beat. You know, we have to be, if we see Frank in some way, and then we see that we're in a changed environment. And that's the difficult thing to just jump into the party scene. You, you, you don't, you, you don't know who is who and you don't know what the, you know, what the baseline is. So right. that's a thing that it's very easy to throw those scenes away. And I think what I recall Mr. Sondheim saying was something like, oh, that's, we realized that was sort of a, what is the word he used? He used some amazing word, uh, but it was basically like, oh, an easy or stereotyped, uh, a cliche choice is maybe what he said. Mm-hmm. It was like, yeah, maybe. But you know, this is a memory play and it gives us something to hang on to in terms of this is someone who is going through an emotional state and you know, it's gonna push us into that, uh, you know, into that flashback. And when it doesn't have that, then if you're someone who's coming to the play without knowing about all the other versions, blah, 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 and you just don't know what to hang on to. And then I think, then they go into this weird thing about likability, but the whole point is that he's reached an end that he's not happy with. That's the whole point. So it's, um, yeah, it was tricky. Yeah. An end at, and he's like in his forties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, time to turn things around, but. <laughs> well, right, exactly. And looking back, oh, 40, you know. Um, and it was so cool to see the documentary. I watched that again this morning. Yeah. I, I love the documentary and, and, and we should say for, you know, just in terms of facts that come, uh, that merrily we roll along, uh, was at, you know, after the string of, of hits that Sondheim uh-huh. and had and working with Hal Prince and it, and then it closed after, gosh, how many? 16, 16. I think 40, 44 previews and 16 performances. Yeah. And, and they, yeah, because Sweetie Todd was right before it. Huge right. hit, all those things. And um, yeah, the doc, so, and then a you know, few years ago, there was a documentary that one of the original cast members, Lonnie Price, did. And it's it's really great. And, and what struck me about that documentary was it really, I, I know they've talked about this, but it really goes into like their impetus for writing the show, which was mm-hmm. they were so interested in young people. Mm-hmm. And like, what are young people doing? And what what is what are the youth? What what is what are the youth going through? Yes, yeah. and 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 this and and so that was like the impetus for writing this show. And you know, and and this is what came out of it, which is not. It's not really about young people. It's about no, it's not. <laughs> no, it isn't it's about like what happens after you're young, I guess, or like. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but, but how the impetus for writing the show was actually what kind of made that version of the show fail in a way or, or what people, you know, uh, what, I mean, that's arguable, I guess, but like one of, I mean, it's a main thing they changed, you know, mm-hmm. from the original. Yeah. And it is interesting. And again, like, you know, when I did it in college, of course, we're in the context where everyone is, you know, that's every, every right. single show we're all young, but um, yeah, I, I think, I forget who wrote in one of the books, maybe Sondheim and Company or somewhere else, but they said, you know, it's most successful when you have people who are around 30 who can play above and below the age because it really shouldn't be. And it was watching that 
um, seeing and going, yeah, and how they ended up sort of putting this cast that, you know, some of them really accomplished. I mean, it's amazing to watch Lonnie Price, you know, both, you know, at his current age when he was making it, and then sort of they had this all this footage. Um, I should say it's on Netflix, or at least it is where I am. So I think it's probably findable on Netflix for people. The best worst thing uh, that ever could have happened. Um, but you're right. It isn't. It isn't really about about youth, and so that maybe is like when they were so focused on that, they sort of lost sight of a lot yeah. of other things. Yeah, it, it it's like they they had to let go of that of that mm-hmm. impetus, which it didn't seem like they did until after you right. know, after Broadway, the Broadway. Yeah, program. yeah. But it's interesting to see other, you know, other shifts, you know, songs, new songs that have come in. And you see his, you know, sometimes like later style, mm-hmm. um, you know, with some of uh, like growing up and some other songs that are yeah. in it. Well, that Frank, um, which replaced, is mm-hmm. very, is similar to Rich and Happy. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. takes a lot of the same sections and keeps those. But it just makes me think of um, from Sunday in the Park. Uh, oh. Like a cra- it's like a crowd, it's like yeah. a crowd song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, opinions and whatnot. Yeah, we're think yeah different lines from different people coming in, mm-hmm. which is it's sort of like that with Rich and Happy, but way more like that with that Frank. Yeah. <laughs> I'm rich and famous and therefore happy to Yeah, it seems like he was like, now I know how to write that that kind of song. I mean, I know that the impetus for for changing it was, you know, uh, the likability factor. Yeah, and like now this is like like I think you know, rich and happy was like from a from a young person's point of view. I think he said, whereas like that Frank is more of like an adult point of view. Yeah, well, I th- I always looked at Rich and Happy as like Frank's in a he's in a dream world. You know, he mm-hmm. is he thinks things are great, and there's a you know a crowd of barracudas swimming behind him. But it is something like whenever I talk about Marilyn with people, the first thing is like, okay, so do you like Rich and Happy better, <laughs> Frank better? It's a test. is moving back to Paramount. These are the movers, these are the shapers, these are the people that fill the papers. Mexico! These are the friends of Frank. Moving back to Paramount. Each one a perfect place. When you see a movie that's successful, what can you say? Congratulations! Thank you! I know we're talking about, like, We Wish Hills of Tomorrow Mm -hmm. were in the show, so... I always get to the any production I've seen. I always get to the end, and and think you know he because he does do a little speech at the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I always I'm thinking like here they're gonna put Hills of Tomorrow in. It's coming. They they put it back yes, in. Yes, yes. It's like I I like want it to be there so bad, and it feels like it could be there. You know, at the at least at the end, or yeah, it's not yeah. set. It would maybe not set up in the beginning the way Sondheim. You know, they they wanted to take it out, but it just feels like it I've, could be there. Yeah, well, and you know, I forget where I read this, but um, where it was pointed out that Frank has really only written one song, and it's that because you know, but 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 is is um you know, good thing going. It's that same melodic phrase. It started out like a song We started quiet and slow with no surprise And then one morning I woke to realize We had a good thing going It's just transformed, which I didn't even realize until wherever I'd read it. You know, and it's not something you think you pick up 
in a heavy handed way, but like, that's a good case for, you know, I mean, for every composer who has a trunk tune and you pull it out and turn it into something else and, you know, and it, it, it absolutely could be there. I mean, our time is a great, you know, just like, you know, rich and happy or that Frank is a second song, you know, if they're treating merrily, we roll along. It's like as um, something that moves us. It, our time is also great, but it's not the last song. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible second to last. Yeah. Song. Whenever I've seen it, you know that song. I mean, our time is such an incredible. You know that does capture, you know that that youthful feeling. Right. If that's what they were after, but it needs. I don't know. And then it just seems like it needs something after, which is the understanding or you know, the way that Hills of Tomorrow works as a beginning and an end. And so, as valedictorian of the class of 1955, I choose now to acknowledge the debt I owe all of you. And And most most important, important, the the debt debt I I owe my generously talented friend and classmate, Charles Kringus. Kringus with whom I wrote the commencement song you are about to hear. My final thought is a simple but mighty thought. It is the obligation we have been given. It is to not turn out the same. It is to grow, to accomplish, to change the world. Well, you talked to Sondheim about it. What did he say? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he yeah, he said like, well, we took those out because we didn't need them. And I was like, but you do, you do. Yeah. And I've also been thinking a lot about, you know, this show, um, you know, marks the end of his collaboration mm-hmm. with Hal Prince. And that, like, I, I've always thought about it as like, Hal Prince era <laughs> goes up to the show. The Sondheim Hal Prince mm-hmm. era goes up to the show, and then he starts the Lapine era with um, Sunday in the Park. And yeah, yeah. But actually, this show, because they worked on it, Lapine worked on it later with them. Mm-hmm. The show strat. It, it doesn't. It's not like a yeah. like yeah, a line. It, it actually like straddles that. Like this show mm-hmm. is actually the combination of Sondheim and Prince and Sondheim and Lapine. Mm-hmm. Like, it has, like it's like a, you know, weird bridge or hybrid of Sondheim's two big collaborations. And yeah, like, what is not, that? it, that's really cool. Like, the show like could not have existed at least in its current form mm-hmm. without either one of, of them. Oh yeah. Before we move on. So I want to, what is your, favorite song from Merrily? If you had to pick one. <laughs> if I had to pick one, <laughs> um, it would be the reprise of Not A Day Goes By because that was kind of my, you know, as, as a, you know, as a kid listening to it over and over, it was maybe the first encounter I'd had with that kind of trio that is really a duet with an observer, you know? Mm. And I then proceeded to like write something like that in every show that I did. It's like, oh, these two people are singing there, but there's the other person over there. You know, it's like all the way up through, um, you know, it's like a heart full of love and Les Mis, where you've yeah. got uh, Marius and Cosette and Eponine yeah. is over there doing- Love you triangle. Know, yeah. yeah, love triangle. There we go. There's the word, love triangle, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. What did I say? It's a duet with an extra bit, or that would be called a trio. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think it's that it's um, because it's it's a classic example of a reprise, bringing new information, a new situation, mm-hmm. and it's one of the most heartbreaking moments in the show, like consistently, always. Mm-hmm. 
But it only gets better and stronger and deeper and nearer and simpler and freer and richer and clearer and more. Not a day goes by. Not a blessed day. Aren't you somewhere come into my life? If you do, I'll die I want day after 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 day I would, I would actually, I was thinking about this for myself earlier, which is why I wanted to ask you, but I was thinking Bobby and Jackie and Jack Mm-hmm. Um, is like I love not a day goes by. I love opening doors. Our time, you know. But oh yeah. I feel like Bobby Jack and Jackie and Jack is just so fun and clever and for like, like intentionally clever, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I, I mean, after I first saw it as a high schooler, like this was the song that I always had on, like on my in the car, you know. <laughs> oh yeah. It's just so. It's like fun to sing. It's like. Um, I don't know, and I th- you can feel like Sondheim, just like I don't know. I I always like when you can feel a writer just delighting in what they're writing, and I feel like that's the song in the show. Like he just he was like, oh good, this is the kind of song I love to write. I'm gonna have a great time. Like let's do it. <laughs> like learning later about like all those kinds of. It was only like when I sort of moved to New York and knew more about like that kind of 60s. We're doing a little review downtown right. and what that really was to really understand the brilliance of it. Like, um, you know, like the little group that like, was it like Comden and Green and Judy Holiday yeah. were in and like, and how well he captured that, that it wasn't just this song. It was a whole era of, um, so people seeing it. You know, you know, in 1981 would be like, oh yeah, this is absolutely within memory. It's just like 15 years ago, people right. were doing these kinds of clever little reviews, you know, in the village. Um, yeah, no, it's a great. And you get to see like something that they were writing early on, and it's like, wow, mm-hmm. yeah, like Charlie is really clever. <laughs> that Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> 
this is, you know, as you know, kid, when I was buying up these albums, you know, I did buy Pacific Overtures, but that is, there's some of those songs, which are when you're, you know, they're easy entry, like some of them uh, in that show and other ones were more challenging. And a bowler hat is something when I first heard it, I was like, okay, and it's kind of went in one ear, not the other, but it, I kept coming back to it. And when um, later, when I started um, teaching at NYU and teaching, um, I, I would often teach the summer classes, you know, where, you know, people come from everywhere and we do sort of like a, an intense, like six or seven week program. And, you know, I'd gathered like great examples of lyrics and, um, you know, um, when you talk about song structure, you know, the sort of the classic, you know, either verse chorus or AABA, um, there's, you know, a, a folk form, which is, you know, just AAA, like verses, like the sort of a pop song example is like, by the time I get to Phoenix, where all the, all the verses are the same. And it's, it's really rare in musical theater. And I was sort of looking around, I was like, oh yeah, a bowler hat, which we'll get into this because there is a case to be made that it's that it has an alternating structure, but it's as I dug into it, it's an absolute um, like jewelry level. Like a jeweler has constructed this. It's um, so spare and simple, but it absolutely makes me weep um, when I return to it because it's an incredible example of. Um, these short phrases of, you know, a person's possessions, their environment, their attitude. And he just very rarely references his own emotion, but you see him changing. And by the end, I mean, I, I get choked up thinking about it. And so it's something that I very often start off a, a class and I've used it even recently um, doing seminars about musical theater songwriting about the power of lyric and you know there's a real trend now um for songs which are very personal and sort of stream of consciousness and you know that's a whole you know style but this is something which has incredible power in restraint and just the structure of it like i was looking back over it you know and it's um you know it's like the first line is, you know, it's a bowler hat. It's it's called a bowler hat. I wear a bowler hat. It's called a pocket watch. I wind my pocket watch. It's called a monocle. They call them spectacles. And then, you know, the second alternates between having a wife or wine. You know, I have no wife. I have a wife. I've left my wife, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you were pointing out, like, um, then the next line it's birds, the swallow flying through the sky. Um, no eagle flies against the sky, no bird exploring in the sky. And the matching lines are about the house. Right. So he's either flying or he's in a house. I mean, just the absolute gorgeousness of it. And there is this thing about the pattern underneath, you know, ba-da-da-da, 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 ba-da-da-da. The bowler hat. I have no wife. The swallow flying through the sky is not as swift as I am flying through my life. You pour the milk before the tea. The Dutch ambassador is no fool. I must remember that. And it captures the passing of time. Now, one could say, like, you know, there are these uh, instrumental bits underneath in which there's spoken text. And that could be, I mean, that is like a musical relief if you're getting super, um, you know, um, super strict about what it means to have like, you know, an AA form. But it's the relentlessness of it. And even though there are like from one standard to, to the next, there's sort of the first version of it that has, um, you know, the hat and the and the wife and the the bird imagery but it's something how each as each one changes and it's like um i use it as an example in lyric writing because it's like each one is a one two three i have no wife i have a wife i've left my wife um you know uh 
things about his attitude towards the Dutch ambassador, things like that. And so, and every time I play it in the class, I think, well, I've, this is maybe the, you know, 9900th time that I've heard it, but it always moves me. Um, just because the power of restraint and that the act gives the actors something to play and to watch the, the both, I guess it, the, the, the tragedy, maybe that's not the right word, but watching someone, you know, be absorbed by a new culture and really in microcosm, that is what this is about, which is, you know, the entry of, and, and the, the attempted at cultural domination and that, you know, he both has to accept that, but also like, what is he losing? You know, I think about it more as someone who, I mean, I'm, you know, living in Denmark now. And of course, you know, it's, there's some things which, you know, it's obviously not to that same degree at all, but there is something about culturally, you know, what changes you when you're encountering something new and, 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 and what it does to you. But yeah, that is, I, th I think it's absolutely at the peak of, um, uh, of lyric writing. Yeah. And should say that this is in the, the second act of the show. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, I guess it, it, it's becoming even more and more opened up to the, mm -hmm. to the West. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I love everything you've said about it and, and even, and I, and I think even the imagery or the object of the bowler hat also, you're talking about what gets lost, what gets consumed, even the bowler hat kind of gets consumed away or lost. Mm -hmm during the yeah. song which i love and it's like wait what happened to the bowler hat you know now we're on to something else now we're on to mm -hmm. uh the spect the monocle and the spectacles mm -hmm. somebody else was wearing a bowler hat now now i have a cutaway you know <laughs> it's like like that last line it's called a cutaway and i i saw you know this is one where it's hard to it's not staged as often for a lot of reasons but i saw a production in minneapolis and I believe I'm remembering this correctly, but there was a, where that last moment, gosh, I get so emotional talking about this song. He put on that coat, mm -hmm. all the cutaway. And you, and you see he's been transformed into this like mirror image of a, you know, a British gentleman. Mm -hmm. And just the, and he had this, the actor had this incredible mix of, pride that he was succeeding in this new political sphere but the way that it's so it, like it didn't come down with a judgment of this is terrible mm -hmm. but it was such a mix I mean this is another complicated emotion type of thing to where you know he had to do this to survive and he had survived and prospered but at the same time what is lost and just mm -hmm. that last thing being the jacket oh god so great the outer it's like the outer layer like yes exactly we, you know it's complete you know yeah and just it's like imperialism in a nutshell they call them spectacles i drink much wine I take imported pills, I have a house up in the hills. I've hired British architects to redesign. When must accommodate the times as one lives them? One must remember that. It's called a cutaway. the verses have slight alterations. Like yeah, you could, yeah. Like you could kind of look at it as like A, B, A, B. Mm -hmm. a very, like a very, uh, you know, like the difference between, you know, like a light blue and a turquoise blue, like yeah. a slight. And there is also then the other um, music that comes in, uh, you know, with the um, intervening dialogue. So, um, but it's something which, you know, you when using it to look at song form, it's the closest thing to that to see that it was chosen because of that 
there's never, at least in that character's, you know, uh, sung text, there's never a big release, you know, mm -hmm. into something else. So the, the differences are very, and the whole song is about slight differences, slight differences mm -hmm. that transform over time. Yeah. I also just really love the rhyme scheme in, mm -hmm. in each verse because um, it's it's so different from like usual rhyme schemes I guess it's like mm -hmm. weird, um, a like a b c c b d e a <laughs> I think I <laughs> yeah it, it's another little puzzle box and you know it's one of those it's always hard with wife of course because we're expecting you know, we're expecting life basically. Mm -hmm. And the way that it extends, yeah, it's called a bowler hat, I have no wife. The swallow flying through the sky is not as swift as I am flying through my life. The way it buttons that up is like, oh my God. It's, yeah. so, it's just so uh, elegant and precise, but it, it's that intervening rhyme, which then makes the arrival, it, it allows life to be a surprise arrival. Which is mm. such a which is such a challenge to do, right? Well, yeah, and it is every time he uses wife, it rhymes with life, but it's yeah. always like a different way of of looking at it. And but when he uses wine in the alternating verses, that mm -hmm. rhyme he, is always different. It's not the same word. Yeah, it's what it's like shrine the first time. Is uh, it shrine? Yeah. And then sign, sign, design, redesign. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just interesting to know that. That's why I feel like it is. A, it could be looked at as A B A B because there are these slight differences with mm -hmm. the alternating verses mm -hmm. that he's doing, like the the rhyme, the the scan of those those two inner lines between the rhymes that we were talking about mm. is different like the swallow flying hot the, the swallow flying through the sky is not as swift as i the rhyme lands different from when it's the house is far too grand i've bought a new umbrella in the sand it's the rhyme where the rhyme falls yeah. is slightly off mm -hmm. i mean it's so, so it's, it's like maybe it's like a italic a you know, yeah. so it's like right, right. But yeah, it's it's the subtlest of differences. It's so subtle, but like I'm sure it's it's working on us in in some way. You know, hat rhymes with the the first line and the last line rhyme in the uh, f first two mm -hmm. hat, but then when it's no longer hat, it doesn't rhyme anymore. <laughs> right, right. It comes. Yeah, but remember that bowler hat. Yeah. Yeah. Once we're into watch, then it comes back to he wears a bowler hat and remember that. Yeah. Oh God, I just. It's like the rhyme scheme is. It's like when, like in the beginning, before things, while things were still kind of holding on to the former life, you know, or, or whatever the former ways, that that rhyme was still there. But mm -hmm. as he goes along, like that, uh, that rhyme is gone. Yeah, it's 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 a great testament to the absolute simplicity. You can build something which is very kind of interlocking and complex, but at its heart, it's the rule of three, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, and kind of woven in and out. And it's, you know, it does so much work with so few words and, you know, very um, clear, concrete things, details. Yeah, and just as you're saying, I think... I mean, Pacific Overtures, I think, is just an amazing example throughout of um, taking something intellectual and making it emotional mm -hmm. and like what, what, like how that happens. I, I mm -hmm. always hear that about someone in a tree, like this is something intellectual that's becoming emotional and it kind of has to pass through, the through theatrical in order to get mm -hmm. to emotional, but it's does someone in a tree does that this song definitely does that as we've been describing um it, it's and it's fascinating how that that process works whenever um you know i'm looking at like what are songs that take you through time i mean uh, a bowler hat is another great 
I guess this is maybe that's the unifying link here. The unifying link between, you know, merrily we roll along, taking you through time on sort of a, a larger level yeah. and a bowler hat doing it in this one song. The mark. Yeah. And the markers of, of it are, is interesting. Mm -hmm. Like you hear the first stanza or the first verse and you hear, I have no wife. What does that mm -hmm. mean? I have no wife. What is that? Mm -hmm. And then, right. But you don't get it until you hear the next. Yes. You understand. Oh, this is going to, have variations that are going to take me through right uh, i have a wife oh okay now that mm -hmm. makes sense now i can connect it to what i heard before and you might expect that there's going to be a big chorus where he sings about what he's feeling and it just never comes right it's all restrained and gorgeous cool well let's move on to our final section which is something wonderful, where we just talk about something upcoming or current in musical theater that we are excited about or want to give a shout out to. Here in Denmark, things have just recently been given the green light to um, reopen. So all these productions that have been sort of in a holding pattern are now, mm -hmm. uh, now opening here. Um, it's interesting in a larger way. I mean, this is maybe such a, you know, sort of a ground level thing, but um, I didn't know that I would be all into seeing this West Side Story, you know, um, new take on it. But, I, you know, the trailer dropped, I guess, like a week or two yeah. ago. And yeah, it looks cool. I mean, I, uh, but yeah, I mean, just from, you know, of course, you know, Spielberg is, you know, such an, a, has such command of like camera movement and yeah, all that kind of thing. That was a lot of it for me watching that trailer where I was like, whoa, like I'm seeing like like the shots mm -hmm. are very cool looking. And it's like, wait, the two like looking down at the two gangs coming at each mm -hmm. other. That, mm -hmm. that Just that shot makes me be like, OK, I, I would see this. <laughs> and that they put Rita Moreno. In yeah. The film, which is fantastic. Yeah. So, um, you know. A great trailer doesn't necessarily mean a great <laughs> film, but it's a great start, at least. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scenetosong at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song on Twitter at scene song and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald and check back here in two weeks for our next episode. Mm -hmm.